Jeremiah chapter 36, verse number 1. There is a connection in some degree to the sermon we'll preach tonight and the sermon that was preached two weeks ago. Now, it's not necessarily a series, and the connection is not necessarily um, in some type of logical progression, but the connection is strictly by heritage. And if you'll recall, two weeks ago we spoke of a wonderful man by the name of King Josiah, who took the kingdom at a very young age, eight years old, the Bible tells us, and uh, he, as one of the very few men in the, the nation of Israel's history, this could be said about, but he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. And only a few men can have that said about him. And he was one of those men, and he took over at eight years old. Could you imagine handling an eight-year-old boy the keys to Walmart, much less the keys to a nation? And this man took the nation, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. And so... Uh, one day he decides to repair the house of God, and so he sets the necessary funds aside. He creates a budget, and I think there's something to be learned from that. You don't just spend money you don't have, but they made a plan, and they budgeted in how they were going to repair the house of God. But in the repair work, if you'll recall, they found something. They found a book of the law. And when they found this book of the law, it was brought to this good man, this great king, Josiah. And when they read the book of the law to King Josiah, he was grieved. In fact, the Bible even says he, he, was, he put on sackcloth. It, 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 it affected him to the point that he was pushed to repentance. And he sought for others to seek God to uh, uh, repent. And that was what we talked about two weeks ago. Now, I have to be honest, the antithesis of that particular story is what we'll be speaking on this evening. And it just so happens that we're only one generation removed from King Josiah. Verse number 1, chapter number 36 in Jeremiah. Now, as with most Old Testament books and many of these passages, you will be forced to read names that you're not exactly sure how to read. So please forgive me if I fail to phonetically pronounce them according to what you would uh, require. Verse number 1, Jeremiah chapter 36. The Bible says, And it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of... Say that next name with me. Josiah, king of Judah. See what I mean? We're only one generation removed from that glorious day when the book of the law was found and a nation turned back to God. That this word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take thee a roll of a book, and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel and against Judah and against all the nations from the day I spake unto thee, from the days of Josiah even unto this day. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them, that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Now you see the ultimate goal of every word written in God's holy word is for men to turn back to Him. Even as He's giving His word to Jeremiah now, He's not looking to send it with vengeance 
In fact, I believe that's one of the reasons that the prophet Jonah had it so misconstrued. Jonah was to deliver a message to Nineveh. He arrived at Nineveh and once he said, uh, uh, repent, and he preached his message that God had him preach, he could not believe that God spared them when they turned back to God. And it angered him. But you see, any prophet that preaches God's word angry, or any preacher that preaches God's word angrily, and, and not in expectation of men to be drawn back to God, that man is in error. Because God's ultimate goal for his word was to restore fallen mankind to himself. And here God says, man, I hope and I pray that as I give you their word, this word, they'll come back to me. Verse number four, then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah. And Baruch wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken unto him upon a roll of a book. And Jeremiah commanded Baruch saying, I am shut up. Now, we don't know what that means entirely. You can ask 17 commentators and they'll all have different answers. Most rule out that he was in prison. Most would maybe suppose that it is ceremonial uncleanliness. Some believe it was just for fear. I don't necessarily buy into that. But for some reason or another, the great prophet Jeremiah could not take the word of God himself and deliver it. So so he uh, requested the help of Baruch to do this. He says, I am shut up and I cannot go into the house of the Lord. Therefore go thou and read in the roll which thou hast written from my mouth, the words of the Lord in the ears of the people in the Lord's house, upon the fasting day, and also thou shalt read them in the ears of all Judah that came out of their cities. It may be they will present their supplication before the Lord and return every one from his evil way. For great is the anger and the fury that the Lord hath pronounced against this people. You know, this is just uh, secondary, and maybe this will be an encouragement to you. I was reading Psalms this week. You know what the Bible says? The Lord is great in mercy and slow to anger. Even as God's anger boils up inside of him, he is slow to pour out his wrath upon anyone. And here Jeremiah recognizes they're at a a boiling point, so to speak. They're They're at a point where God's anger is either going to be spilled out or men were going to be restored by their choice to repent. Verse number eight. And Baruch the son of Neriah did according to all that Jeremiah the prophet commanded him, reading in the book the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. Now it is not that verses 9 through 19 are not part of our story because it's very much in context with what we're going to be speaking about tonight. But for time's sake, we'll skip forward to verse 20. And the Bible says, And they went into the king, in, uh, and they went into the king into the court. But they laid up the roll in the chamber of Elishama the scribe, and told all the words in the ears of the king. So the king sent Jehudi, praise the Lord, we don't have that name this evening, to fetch the roll. And he took it out of Elishama the scribe's chamber, and Jehudi read it in the ears of the king, and in the ears of all the princes which stood beside the king. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass that when Jehudi had read three or four leaves, notice this, he cut it with a penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth, until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. 
yet they were not afraid. Nor rent their garments, neither the king nor any of his servants that heard all these words. Nevertheless, Alnathan and Deleah and Gemariah had made intercession to the king that he would not burn the roll, but he would not hear them. But the king commanded Jeremiel, the son of Hemelech, and Sariah, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdil, to take Baruch the scribe and Jeremiah the prophet. But the Lord hid them. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. After that, the king had burned the roll, and the words which Baruch wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah, saying, Take thee again another roll. And write in it all the former words that were in the first roll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, hath burned. And thou shalt say to Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Thus saith the Lord, thou hast burned the roll, saying, Why hast thou written therein, saying, The king of Babylon shall certainly come and destroy this land, and shall cause uh, to cease from thence man and beast? Therefore thus saith the Lord of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have none to sit upon the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out in the day to the heat, and in the night to the frost. And I will punish him and his seed and his servants for their iniquity, and I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the men of Judah all the evil that I have pronounced against them, but they hearkened not. Then took Jeremiah another roll, and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote therein the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim king of Judah had burned in the fire, and there were added besides unto them many like words. The word of God is combustible. You see, the word of God is not something that is just to be preached on a weekly basis, to be read on a daily basis, to have no real effect in the life of a Christian. You see, God expects a reaction from you when you hear or read His Word. What is your reaction when you do hear or read it? The other day I was watching uh, uh, the news, which is very rare for me, but I, I, I happened to be watching it. And it just so happened that this evening something came on addressing all of the uh, uh, struggles that our police officers are having with citizens. And certainly if you ha haven't had your head buried in sand somewhere, you've noticed in recent years a growing animosity towards police officers. Uh, I don't understand the reason because police officers are there to help us. And I'll tell you, if anybody ever robs your house or are currently robbing your house... You're thankful for police officers. But there seems to be this animosity growing between people and police officers. And, uh, and you can think what you will about it. But there's definitely a problem. And I don't place the problem at the police officer's feet. Every person they come up to, they have to wonder whether or not they have a weapon that can end their life. Even at the most routine of traffic stops, they have to be concerned about these types of things. Somebody once told me they wanted to be a game warden. I said, that's the last thing I'd want to be. And they said, why? It seems so awesome that you'd be able to deal with game and uh, get to do all the cool stuff. And I said, because you're walking up on a, a campfire with a bunch of drunk rednecks and you know for a fact they have a gun. <laughs> the reality is these police officers, they have a hard go at it. 
And most houses that they go to, there's someone on their side and someone not on their side. There's two sides to every story. And so uh, this particular news story I was watching, and I thought this was good. It was a church that was training teenagers in high school how to appropriately react to police officers at a traffic stop. And that was a good idea, I thought. Um, and uh, there, were, there were folks of all different colors, all different backgrounds there in this training session. And, and they were teaching the, the teenagers there how to react regardless of what the police officer was doing. In fact, even some of the examples they showed on the news broadcast was police officers being over-the-top aggressive, and they were teaching them how to handle that situation so that it did not escalate farther. I thought that was good. One of the very basic things they taught them was whenever you do get pulled over at a traffic stop, and I, I talked to Brother Atley at length about traffic stops one day at lunch. I wish I could say it was admirable. No, I was trying to figure out the best way to get out of tickets. And uh, Brother Atley told me, and they actually taught this as well, one of the most important things you can do is, whenever you do get stopped, just go ahead and put your hands up on the wheel, visible for the police officer to see. Uh, don't reach for your belt buckle. He'll instruct you if you need to do that. You know, sometimes located near people's belt buckle are things that police officers don't really look good, uh, look uh, happily on. So, And uh, if you happen to have a weapon in the vehicle, that's something that needs to be communicated. And I talked at length with him. And in fact, this, this news broadcast was doing a lot of similar stuff. And I thought it was great. When you are in, the, in, in that traffic stop, the police officer is your authority. How do you react to him? How do you react to the word of God in the very same scenario? See, for the Christian, the word of God is our authority. And many times, whether we like it or not, whether it's during a sermon or whether it's during a devotion, a private time with God... Uh, sometimes we look up and we feel the lights of God's word in our rearview mirror, don't we? We find that we are in error or that it is telling us we do not quite meet up to God's expectations for us. And so at that moment, how do you react? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Four non-illiterated truths about your reaction to God's word. Are you ready? We'll go through them quickly. Number one, stay with me. You are individually accountable for your reaction to God's word. In this story, you find the tale of two kings, so to speak. Even Josiah's name is mentioned in several different places in the passage. But King Josiah, when God's word was read to him, and may I remind you, Josiah was a good man before God's word was ever read to him. But even good men do not fit the bill when it comes up to what God's word expects us to be. And as Josiah hears the words read from God's law, he realizes the nation is in moral depravity and decay. And so he is convicted, he is cut to the quick, and his reaction is, I'll repent and I'll figure out how God wants us to fix all the other stuff going wrong. But King Jehoiakim, his son, does not react the same way. In fact, if you read the passage, you'll find that there's an idea or at least a, a sense by all of the guys who was de were delivering his, this word to him 
that he wasn't going to receive it well. In other words, the way it works is Baruch delivers the word uh, uh, to a guy named Micaiah. Baruch is instructed to give the word at a specific place, and Baruch does that. But one day, Micaiah gets word of it. Micaiah somehow is in this chain of command to the king and Micaiah takes it to his superior and and his superior takes it to his superior until the word of Jeremiah has been recorded or reported in the ears of the princes of Jehoiakim. So now the princes have to figure out what they're going to do because they realize this passage of scripture is one of condemnation, one of judgment. And so you know what they tell Baruch to do? They say, Baruch, you and Jeremiah need to go find somewhere to hide. Just, now's a good time to lay low. We haven't taken the word to him. We don't know what King Jehoiakim's reaction is going to be. But we want you to go and hide yourself. And not only do they tell Jeremiah and uh, Baruch to go hide themselves... They also take the word that the the book, the record of what Jeremiah had had dictated to Baruch, and they hide it in, in a in a scribe's chamber, and they don't even read the actual copy to the king at first. In fact, they just go into his quarters and they tell him uh, verbally what they've heard. It is upon hearing that the king says, "Okay, you go get this book you're telling me about." They do. They go fetch the book from the scribe's chambers. They bring it and they read it to the king. They only get three to four leafs, the Bible says. Who knows how long the the book was, but they only get three to four leafs in before the king is so filled with anger and rage. And, 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 And his reaction is already set because of his hard heart towards God. He takes the book that Jeremiah has been given by God... And he takes a knife, strikes it through, cuts the book in half, and throws it into the fire. Boy, do you not see two absolutely different reactions from those two men? You see a man that was content without God. And you see a man that when hearing he didn't have God, he did everything he could find out how to get God. Which king are you more like? When God's word is preached, is it a heart of whatever you want me to do, God, that is what I'm willing to do. Because you realize Jehoiakim could not live off of his daddy's faith. No more than Josiah could give Jehoiakim his faith. There's people in this room that are second and third generation Christians. Have you ever witnessed to a a Hispanic person? Most of the time you'll find a Hispanic person is Catholic. And you'll ask them, uh, this is something I I choose to ask them. I'll say, uh, well, when's the last time you went to Mass? And in almost every time I've ever asked that question, the time has been Easter or Christmas. And, And the reason they are Catholic in many cases is because they are culturally Catholic. Their daddy was a Catholic and their granddad was a Catholic and therefore their heritage has told them they are a Catholic. Now, they're no more Catholic than uh, somebody that never comes to this Baptist church, but they claim to be Catholic. Listen to me. Just because your dad was a good Christian 
And just because his granddad was a good Christian, that don't mean you're a good Christian at all. Ask Jehoiakim. He could not even listen to the entire oration of God's word without being so filled with anger that he destroyed it. He was appalled at its very presence in his life. Now, friend, I, I don't believe that there's ever been anyone in this room ever take a knife and strike through a Bible only to throw it in their fireplace. But maybe your actions are showing how much you respect God's Word in your life. You know how many times Jehoiakim read God's Word on a daily basis? He only got it this one time. How many times are you reading it? Because I have to believe that after Josiah found God's word, it became an active daily part of his life. That is not the case for Jehoiakim. Your reaction to God's word, you are individually and solely accountable for it. As we learned this morning, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And my dad cannot be a good enough Christian for me to do anything for the Lord Jesus Christ. I have to do it on my own. Dad taught me a lot, but he can't teach me everything. Some things out of this book are better caught than taught. You just got to get into it and find it for yourself. You are individually accountable for your reaction to God's word. Number two, the second truth of your reaction to God's word is this. God uses his word in expectation, expectation of a reaction. You see, God wants you to react. And in fact, I believe that God knows you're going to react. Now, how I react, that's really not God's place. God, God can convict and God can persuade, but at the end of the day, you've been blessed with your own volition. You've been blessed with free will. You have something that not even the angels in heaven have. You get to choose. But, oh man, how often we choose poorly. Look, the king, the Bible says in, in, in verse number 3 of Jeremiah 36, God's hope is here now told to Jeremiah it may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them, that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquities. You see, it was God's desire that they would come back to him. It was not God's desire that they would fall under judgment or condemnation, but God wanted them to re be restored unto him. It's actually not much different than the promise we find in Isaiah when the Bible says, Come now and let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though your sins be uh, uh, red like crimson, they shall be made like wool. You see, God says, your sins are many, your iniquities are many, but I'm giving you my word and I'm giving you my promise that if you'll return unto me, I'll restore you unto myself. That's the desire of the Lord. Every morning you read his word. Every Sunday you come hear a sermon preached. God's desire is that the word of God might make you more like him. And introduce you to a deeper, more meaningful relationship to him. You see, you have the desire of the Lord here, but you see, you also have the desire of the preacher. Verse number seven, verse number three was God talking. Now verse number seven is Jeremiah. 
It may be they will present their supplication before the Lord and will return everyone from his evil way. For great is the anger and the fury of the Lord uh, that the Lord hath pronounced against his people. You see how similar the desire of the Lord and the preacher are. God wants them restored unto himself. And the preacher says, man, I want nothing more than for them to go back to God. I've heard time and time again, Christians come to church and they think that the preacher has some type of vendetta against them. Some type of agenda like the preacher's been Facebook stalking you all week so he could figure out what to preach on. Look, I got plenty to preach on. I don't need to stalk you on Facebook because you're boring. Let's be honest. Nothing about your Starbucks cup or your meal you had at lunch intrigues me. So I'll just stay off Facebook. And so I, I, I don't come to church with any... Uh, in fact, one of the reasons I got off Facebook was so that I did not know what you were doing, so I did not craft sermons to preach at you. But the, if, if the Lord's man and the Lord's missions align... That is something you need to listen to. If you genuinely believe in your heart that when the man of God stands behind this desk, he has prepared and he has prayed and he has planned out how he's going to deliver the message and then prays a prayer of complete submission to God that says, Lord, I've studied and I've prepared, but if you don't want me to preach what I've prepared, you change it. If you believe the man of God that stands behind this desk is in complete submission to his will and his uh, wants for that message, friend, you would be wise to pay attention to that message. Now, I've been to churches where you could uh, hear a preacher preach and there's a whole lot less about Jesus and a whole lot more about what color clothes you're wearing. I've been to a, a sermon, I promise you, it felt like the name of the sermon was, here's why I don't wear pink and why you shouldn't either. And there was almost nothing about the Lord in the sermon. And the whole time I'm just wondering, how are people enjoying this? I don't care what your opinions are. I don't care what your perspectives are. I don't care what your experiences are. Man, you've got some funny stories, but how about you stop being a comedian and you just deliver to me God's word. And if you feel like you're coming to a church where God's word is delivered, friend, you would be wise to pay attention to what is said behind this desk. God's word, when it is preached, it is meaningful and it is impactful. And the desire of the preacher and the desire of the Lord should push you to a choice. It's like the Old Testament prophet that said, How long halt ye between two opinions? Like, uh, like Joshua said, Whether you choose the gods of the Amorites or whether you choose the gods whom your fathers served on the other side of the flood, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And he was pushing them to a choice. And he was saying, You cannot always be on both sides of the fence at the same time, but God's word motivates you to a reaction. Now that reaction sometimes isn't always the one that God wants, but He wants you to choose. You know what He told the church at Laodicea? He told them in the book of Revelation, He said, I wish that you were cold or hot. I would prefer for you to be absolutely unintrigued by anything that is of me, or get all of me, but don't be somewhere in the middle. 
Because he says, I will spew you out of my mouth. You know what the Texas way of saying is? You make me sick. God says this lukewarm Christianity isn't going to do. And God's word pushes us to reaction. God's expectation every time you open that book is that you would react to it. The third truth of your reaction to God's word is this. God blesses his word according to his specific plan. I want you to see in verse number five. I like this and I hope you do too. Verse number five. And Jeremiah commanded Baruch saying, I am shut up and I cannot go into the house of the Lord. Therefore go thou and read in the roll which thou hast written from my mouth. I want you to notice, first of all, it wasn't the prophet, but it was the place. Could you imagine booking one of these famous preachers nowadays? Uh, let's just say, I don't know, uh, uh, maybe a, a, we'll use a David Gibbs, for instance, okay? David Gibbs, he's an attorney, Christian Law Association. Man, he's a funny guy. Man, he tells the funniest stories, the best stories. But at one point or another, you know, his, his sermon, forgive me for reference in this movie, but his sermons are like a Forrest Gump sermon. And you say, what do you mean, Brother Andrew? I mean, at one point or another in Forrest Gump, you're either laughing, crying, or you're feeling all sorts of different emotions in the movie Forrest Gump. That's the way Dr. Gibbs' sermon is. Man, I tell you what, he'll make you laugh, and then right, right after that, you'll be crying. He's a great speaker. Could you imagine booking Dr. Gibbs for a revival meeting for a special day, maybe our anniversary Sunday, and Dr. Gibbs calling us just the day before and saying, Preacher, I can't make the meeting, but I'm going I'm to send one of my interns to do the meeting. And we would probably have some problem with that, wouldn't we? We would say, well, Dr. Gibbs, we're not expecting your intern. We haven't been promoting your intern. We haven't, we haven't you know, put up billboards. We haven't been passing out literature for your intern. We've been telling everybody that you're coming to speak for us. Well, that's exactly what happens here. Jeremiah, the great prophet, man, the guy who can preach. Jeremiah, everybody knows Jeremiah. Who knows about Baruch? Nobody knows who Baruch is. I even have trouble remembering his name and I'm preaching the sermon. And yet Jeremiah, listen to me, has such faith, not in his sermon, but in God's word that he says, it's really irrelevant who delivers the message. God's word is what is effective, not the way it's preached. He says, look, I need you to go somewhere and I want you to notice where he tells him to go. Verse number five, Jeremiah commanded Baruch saying, I am shut up. I cannot go into the house of the Lord. But in verse 6, we find out that Jeremiah wants him to go on the day of fasting, and he wants him to go to the house of the Lord. It wasn't the prophet, but it was actually the place where it was preached. Now, could not Jeremiah have sent Baruch to any street corner and start preaching this message? Could not he uh, have sent him to maybe a, 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 a courthouse square or, or maybe a popular venue where people would go? I would think that there's places there that he could send him, but he sends him to God's house. 
When you look at scripture, you'll find that regardless of who the prophet or the preacher were, they had a habit of going to the house of God. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2, or Acts chapter 7, verse 2, verse 1 and 2, and Paul, as his custom was, went into the synagogue. Why did Paul have a custom of going to the synagogue? If anybody, now preacher, you back me up on this. If anybody understood that the synagogue was kind of going by the wayside, it was the apostle Paul. He was one of the pillars for the New Testament church. And yet Paul was still going to the synagogue. Luke chapter 4, Jesus deals with Satan and the temptation. And we often focus on the temptation of Satan. But by my account, there's only about three temptations there. And maybe there was more than that. But the reason Jesus went into the wilderness was he wanted some time alone with God. In fact, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he comes back on a spiritual high. I mean, he has been with God for about 40 days. He's been fasting. He's been praying. Jesus is on the mountaintop if Jesus ever had ups and downs in the Christian life, which I'm not necessarily sure he did. But at this time, Jesus is coming back from a spiritual retreat, man. Jesus is on fire, Luke chapter 4. You know the first place he goes? The synagogue. The house of the Lord. And in fact, they, that's the same day that they deliver the book of Isaiah to him and he reads about himself. If Jesus himself, after spending 40 days with God, doesn't dismiss himself, why do we? How come there... Don't, don't pay attention to it, you guys. Y'all, let's look up here. Word of God's being preached. There's a guy walking around. Let's look up here, all right? We're good. Everybody, eyes up here. Eyes up here. But if, if, if Jesus... After 40 days of, of being with God, didn't come back and say, you know what? I just had a whole lot of God. Why should I go to church today? If Jesus didn't dismiss himself, why do we? Boy, we dismiss ourselves for just about every other reason. But I wonder why Jeremiah sent the word to the house of God. Do you know why? Because God has chosen to glorify himself in the church. In fact, the Bible says, unto him be glory in the church, world without end, amen. God's method for glorifying himself is through the church. And I am okay with Bible studies, but I am not okay with Bible studies that are removing themselves and plucking themselves out of church just to study the Bible. Bible studies are not blessed why did Jeremiah go to the house of God? Because throughout the Bible, you see a pattern of God's word being blessed in the house of God. It wasn't the preacher. It wasn't the prophet. It was the place. Notice that it was not the source, but it was the substance. Notice in verse number uh, six, if you will. The, Jeremiah is telling Baruch how he's to go and deliver the word of God. Therefore go thou, and read the next word there, read in the roll. He doesn't say preach. If you do any study on the word preach, it means to lift up your voice like a trumpet. That's why I get loud. That's why I get my voice high, because I'm hitting those high soprano notes with my voice. You understand? And God said, you know, so that I'm just trying to trumpet my voice. And I think that's good, but... 
But there's no confusing verse number 6. Jeremiah doesn't tell him to go preach. What does he say? Hey, Baruch, go read it. Can you imagine how lame that sermon would be? Just a guy reading it? It's like a, a nobleman making a king's decree pronouncement to the village folk, is it not? That's kind of what it feels like. It is not the, the source, it, or it is not the substance, it is the, the source of it. God's word is blessed not upon the delivery style, not upon the illustrations that preachers craft. That's the one thing that everybody knows me for is illustrations. I hope you know me for a lot more than just delivering illustrations. I hope you know me as the guy that preaches God's word. Illustrations are, are nothing more than coloring in, filling in some things that might be hard to understand. God's word does not need me to help it be powerful. In fact, if anybody stands in the way of God's word, it's me and my limitations and my inability to tell you what God's word is saying by the power of God. And I pray every time, God, use me in that way. This man just read it. You know, the most famous sermon in history was preached by Jonathan Edwards. Everybody, most likely, if you've been in Christianity long, would know the title of it. It was one of the sermons that prompted the Great Awakening. In fact, the sermon was called, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. That sermon is 7,162 words long. It is from one of the most obscure passages in the book of Deuteronomy that you can ever imagine. In fact, the passage is this. Their foot shall slide in due time. Could you imagine getting a 7,000 word sermon out of that verse? Their foot shall slide in due time. You know he never raised his voice. He read every single word. And yet... I would submit to you that in that time period, more people got saved from that sermon than any other. Friend, if, that's, if that isn't proof that the power does not lie with the preacher or the delivery style, I don't know what is. All it takes is God's truth to be revealed. And God says, you just preach, I'll do the rest. It's not the, the, the person that preaches the sermon. It is the place where the sermon is preached. It is not the style in which the sermon is preached. It is the substance of that sermon. It's God's word. And the fourth truth is this. Failure to react appropriately to God's word does not remove its consequences. I said earlier, God's word pushes you to reaction. It is combustible. If you can sit under God's preached word and never feel anything, I, I truly believe I am well within my right as preacher and pastor of this church to say, I am not sure you're saved. Because God's Holy Spirit convicts when people hear God's word. And so God's word pushes you to a reaction and God has no control over what your reaction will be. Sometimes you may choose to uh, approach him and say, God, I've been wrong. 
Other times you may go to God and say, God, I, got, I felt your conviction and I want no part of it. But if you choose to react uh, in error, if you choose to, to appropriately or, or fail to react appropriately to God's word, it doesn't remove its consequences. Look at this King Jehoiakim. What does he do? He destroys the Word of God as if it removed something. Doesn't he? He, he takes it like a toddler in their tantrum. He, he cuts it up like a... This, this is the first shredder in the Bible, actually, if you didn't know that. He shreds up God's Word, trying to get rid of the conviction that he's likely feeling. And he throws it in the fireplace as if to say, I don't want any part of that and whatever it says no longer applies to me. <laughs> I've got news for you, King. Everything God said is still applicable in your life. In fact, if you study the passage and we read the passage in which it says this, God gives Jeremiah a second book and he adds things to the next one. His failure to react appropriately did not remove the consequences that God had put on those words. In the Bible, there's King David after he fails with Bathsheba. We uh, know the story of Nathan. Nathan's one of my favorite Bible characters. In fact, he's my third favorite. It goes, Jesus is my favorite. Be hard to nominate anybody better. Uh, Andrew is my second favorite. Nathan is my third favorite. My name is Andrew Nathan Wolfenbarger. So, King, uh, King David has Nathan the prophet come to him one day and he tells him the story. We all know the story, but the story is of a, of a, a rich man with many sheep and he takes from a family who has one sheep and that sheep is cared for like one of the family and he takes that sheep and uh, he kills that sheep because he has a guest coming into town and, and King David is so enraged and angered by the situation that Nathan's just described. He, he reacts. In fact, he pronounces judgment upon the man without ever hearing the, other, the man's side of the story and, and, uh, uh, and Nathan looks at him and man with the courage uh, that I can't even imagine looks at him with a bony finger, you know, like preacher gets his bony finger in our face sometimes. That's what he did. He put his bony finger in his face and says, Thou art the man, David. And you know what David's response to that is? I have sinned against the Lord. God's word was pronounced to David. David reacted appropriately. Now take your Bible to the book of Daniel, chapter number 4. We won't be much longer, but I don't think I can tell this story in a way that can help us understand all of its intricacies and, and all of the unique things of it. Daniel chapter 4, there's a man by the name King Nebuchadnezzar. Certainly you've heard of him. King Nebuchadnezzar starts off this passage in a way I, I think will probably surprise you. Daniel chapter 4, verse number 1, the Bible says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king unto all people, nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God... Now, let's just... Is that 
capital G-O-D there for y'all too? Is is that, y'all's Bible say capital G-O-D? This isn't one of those things where people dismiss Nebuchadnezzar as saying, oh, well, he looks like one of the uh, sons of one of the gods. No, no, no. King Nebuchadnezzar was very aware of of the situation with God and his son. And here you find, he says, uh, uh, it's good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. How great are his signs, and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is ever an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. If I took that passage of Scripture, verse 2 through 3, and put it in Psalms, you would, you would not know it does not belong. King Nebuchadnezzar bringing praise to God's name. Showing forth the wonderful works that the God of Israel has done through him there in the kingdom. And, and then the chapter kind of unfolds and, and he has a vision, a dream. And this dream is like this. One night King Nebuchadnezzar was at his home and he was sleeping and he had this dream. And this dream showed a great big tree. And this tree could be seen from all ends of the earth. And under the tree were all creatures of the earth drawing shade and comfort from this tree. The tree had great fruit and everybody was blessed by this tree. And yet at some point in the tree, a heavenly host descends from heaven and says, Hewn down that tree. King Nebuchadnezzar, not understanding the vision, not understanding the interpretation. He then uh, hears this, and I will take out of that tree after the tree's been cut down, the stump has been left. And this is in the Bible here in Daniel 4. The stump has been left. The host from heaven says this, and I will take out of it the heart of man, and I will put into it the heart of a beast. King Nebuchadnezzar has no idea what the interpretation is, but he relies on a kid named Belteshazzar. You might more appropriately know him as Daniel. And he calls Daniel. And he says, Daniel, what's the interpretation I've got to know? And Daniel hears the interpretation of the dream. And uh, and, and notice uh, uh, in verse number 27, Daniel begins to tell him the, the interpretation. And the interpretation is essentially, King, you are the tree and God is going to cut you down. And he's going to remove you from the throne. And, and, and he's going to put within you the heart of a beast. And you won't even be recognizable as a man, but you'll be like a beast. You'll behave like a beast. And in verse number 27, Daniel says this. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy, thy tra- tranquility. You know what Daniel does? Daniel says, King, I understand this is not a good vision. I understand this isn't a good interpretation. But I know God. And if you'll repent of your sins, he'll give you mercy. But the Nebuchadnezzar in verses 1 through 3 doesn't understand there are any sins to deal with. Or at least that's my understanding of it. And, and just a mere 12 months later, in fact, the Bible tells us this if you want in verse number 30 of this same passage. 12 months later, the Bible says, uh, verse number 29, 
And at the end of twelve months, he walked into the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the, mighty, the might of my power? And for the honor of my majesty? Boy, does that sound like the same guy twelve months earlier? Twelve months earlier, he says, I thought it good to show the works of God and, and his kingdom is from everlasting to everlasting. Does that sound like the same guy? No, it doesn't at all, does it? In verse 31, while the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall uh, pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar. And he was driven from men and did eat grass as oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hairs were grown out like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Huh. You mean to tell me what God told him 12 months earlier and Daniel's plea for repentance? He ignored it. He put it in its appropriate place or, or uh, 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 he put it in his place anyway. We'll say that. And he, he ignores what David's request is, and, or, or Daniel's request, and Daniel's saying, Oh, king, I know God, and, and, and if you'll just repent, he'll, he'll extend this, and he won't do this to you. Oh, king, if you'll just repent. Twelve months later, no repentance occurs, and guess what happens? God's consequences were just as active in his life as if he had ignored the word altogether or if he had accepted it. The consequences don't go away, even though you may not react accordingly to God's word. What in God's word are you ignoring right now? I know when I was a teenager, it was a spirit of rebellion to everyone, but I, I hit it, okay? This rebellion, for me, it was country music. I don't know what your rebellion is, but for me, that's what it was. Now, my mom and dad didn't want me to listen to country music, and and frankly, I know good people that listen to country music, but, but uh, for me, I knew the rule. And there was a spirit of rebellion in my heart that caused me to ignore what my parents wanted for me. Therefore, to me, I knew what was right and I didn't do it. You know what the Bible says about that? To him it is sin. Amen. As a teenager, what is it that you know without a shadow of a doubt God's word disagrees with your life, what is it you still continue to do? Is it a relationship? Is it a habit? Is it uh, music? Is it a, a, a kind of movie or entertainment? You see, until you deal with this, the consequences are still in place. Parents, what is it for you? Is it a double standard for your children? You see, like you've got to crack down on the kids, but you have liberties that they don't? Is it like you can watch the grown-up movies, but you won't let them? Look, I'm not criticizing, and I am certainly not putting into God's Word what's not there. 
But for us to sit here and play like you don't know what God's word says to do is ridiculous. We've preached a Bible conference. We've taught Sunday school. If you by now have not acknowledged the authority and the appropriate place of God's word in your life, I'm sorry to say I'm not sure how much hope there is for you. God's word is completely authoritative in the Christian's life. It is the sole practice for faith and beliefs right here. The question is not whether I'm speaking to a bunch of people that believe that. The question is, am I speaking to a bunch of people that are acting as if they can ignore it and get away with it? God's word pushes us to a choice. And the preacher that does not do the same is not in agreement with God's will. The preacher that's too noodleback to tell you when you're wrong, that preacher does not preach like the God I see in Scripture. What is it for you? I'm not going to sit here and list off a bunch of convictions of mine or preferences of mine. I'm going to let God's word do the speaking. But at the end of the day, if you've got beef with, beef with another Christian, you've got to get it right. If you are not being kind, you've got to get it right. If you're not being a witness and an ambassador, you've got to get it right. Because these are not suggestions, they are commandments. Tonight, God's word is pushing you. Are you going to react appropriately? My daughters are some of the funnest people watching you'll ever get in. I think Walmart at midnight is just slightly above my daughters all day long. You see some interesting things at Walmart at midnight. A lot of flannel pajama pants and wife beaters. Uh, The shirts, I mean. (laughs) My daughters, man, I tell you what, they are crazy. Uh, Caitlin and Bailey are getting to the age now where there's a lot of uh, conflict Uh, one will want something. You see, Bailey's pretty cool about it, but Bailey will pick up one of Caitlin's toys that Caitlin's not even playing with, and for some reason that just became the most valuable commodity in the entire home. They're standing in a pool of toys, but that's the one Caitlin has to have now because Bailey has it. So often what happens is Bailey grabs it, or, or Caitlin grabs it from Bailey. Well, Caitlin's got a little bit more meat on her bones than Bailey, a little bit more age under her belt. But Bailey's got spunk, man. Tell you what, she's a tornado. And Bailey will just sit there and like, like simmer. And she'll go, Aah! and she started this thing. See, my wife, when, when our daughters do something wrong, my wife does this. No, ma'am. So Bailey started this. No, ma'am. <laughs> and she'll do it to Caitlin. It's like the most violent thing you've ever seen. It looks like WWE. No, ma'am. It's hilarious. And sometimes, my daughter Caitlin's in here tonight. I wasn't expecting that. But sometimes, Bailey has to 
do what she can do. And she's resulted to this. She will grab Caitlin's hair and pull it as hard as she can. And it does not matter at that point how much Caitlin is enjoying the toy that she has in front of her. It doesn't matter whether Caitlin's enjoying this little game of sibling keep away. It does not matter. Because now this bratty little two-year-old has Caitlin's hair and she's ripping it out of her flesh. And Caitlin is controlled by the hair. In fact, at that point, you know what? She has to make a choice. (laughs) That choice is to whether give up the toy and come find mom and dad and complain about Bailey pulling her hair or whether to fight back. And at this point, Caitlin ain't figured out she's bigger than Bailey. You know what God's word does to us? Every time you open that book, it is a pool of your hair. And it does not matter how much you're enjoying your flesh at that moment. God's word is causing you to choose. It does not matter what habit you've got, what, what uh, course of life you're in. God's word, like, like my daughter pulls my other daughter's hair, God's word grabs your spirit, arrests your attention and says, now Christian, it's time to either straighten up or get off, but you've got to choose. Which do you choose? How do you react to God's word? 